Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Psalm 80. This is another of the 11 Psalms of Asaph in Book 3 of the Psalter. As we've mentioned a few times now, the ascription, a psalm of Asaph, or of Asaph, a psalm, means that it was produced by the Asaphite choir. Some of these psalms were no doubt written by the original Asaph, but some of them clearly were products of later composers within the choir. So just like there was an original Zondervan, there were two of them actually, Pat and Bernie Zondervan, but now, when we say Zondervan, we usually understand that as the Zondervan Publishing House. And so, too, when we see the name of Asaph in the inscription, we understand either the original or the choir that followed. The Asaphite Choir was one of the main creators and publishers of liturgical material from the time of David all the way through to the post-exilic period. This psalm almost certainly comes from the middle of the 8th century BC and reflects upon the imminent destruction and dispersion of the northern tribes. In fact, in the LXX, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the words concerning the Assyrians appear in the ascription. So, this is a psalm produced by the Asaphite choir in Jerusalem, asking God to show mercy on the northern tribes who are nearing total annihilation at the hands of the Assyrian invaders. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. The psalmist here mentions Joseph and Benjamin and then also Ephraim and Manasseh, which were the two sons of Joseph that were adopted by Jacob as full sons. Thus, the Joseph tribe became two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. We talked about that in the episode on Psalm 78. These tribes collectively are sometimes called the Rachel tribes, and they were, for lack of a better term, the royal tribes of the northern kingdom. Ishbosheth and Abner were from Benjamin and ruled the northern tribes, originally in opposition to David. And then for most of history, the divided kingdom had its capital city in Samaria, which was in Ephraim. So these are the royal tribes of the north, but they have been in steep decline, along with the country as a whole, for generations. And that was the theme, you will recall, of Psalm 78, another Asaphite psalm. In Psalm 78, Asaph was concerned to explore why it was that Ephraim had declined and been rejected, and Judah had arisen and gained ascendancy. Why was the king blessed by God from Judah and not from Joseph, he wondered. 
What angers God? What pleases God? Wise people spend considerable time thinking about those things. Here, Asaph isn't thinking about the decline of Ephraim. He is praying for the salvation of Ephraim, and that in itself ought to be instructive. We are not mere observers of providence. Rather, by prayer, we are active participants within it. Asaph is praying for the restoration of favor to the northern tribes, even as he has been reflecting upon all they have done to forfeit it. You can and should pray for people who do not deserve grace and mercy. If you couldn't pray for such people, then you wouldn't be able to pray for anybody. Asaph prays for them and identifies with them. Verse 3, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Now, that, of course, is a liturgical adaptation of the Aaronic blessing. Bless us as in days of old, he says. And notice, of course, that he says, bless us, not bless them. Gone is all rivalry. Gone is all tribalism. Crisis makes companions of us all. Verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Structurally, this psalm is fairly straightforward. There are two prayers for deliverance. The first one we've already seen in verses 1 to 3, and then the second one at the end in verses 14 to 19. And then in between, we have a discussion of God's wrath and a remembrance of past mercy. In essence, the argument flows like this. Lord, deliver us. I I know that you are a holy God and your anger is a fierce thing, but I also recall that you have been merciful in the past when we failed in similar ways. Oh, Lord, deliver us once again. Here in verses 4 to 7, we're seeing that discussion of God's righteous anger. And once again, we notice that the psalmist does not ask why. He knows why God is angry. God is angry because his covenant people have been stubborn and persistent in their sin and in their idolatry. That's the answer to the why question. But the psalmist doesn't ask the why question. The psalmist asks, how long? Do you intend to be angry forever? Will Will this be the time out that never ends? Is this the time we have sinned beyond forgiveness? What exactly is going on here, Lord? It feels like this time is different. Oh, God, give us one more chance. Restore us, Lord, that we may be saved. Verse 8, here the psalmist recounts the many gracious and merciful actions of God in the past. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. 
In these verses, the psalmist is reviewing the history of Israel and comparing it to a farmer planting and tending a vineyard. And of course, this imagery is very common in the Bible. In Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, the prophet says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So there, Isaiah does exactly the same thing that Asaph is doing here. He says that God is like a farmer. He wanted a vineyard, so he cleared some ground. That, of course, would refer to the conquest. God went before them and cleared the ground. He pushed out other nations and made a space for Israel to grow and thrive. He planted them there, and he gave them every opportunity to flourish. He expected a harvest of righteousness, ministry, and praise, but instead received only stink fruit. That's the literal meaning of the Hebrew phrase. The grapes were rotten. They stunk, despite having been given every opportunity to grow and flourish. That's the situation in northern Israel, according to Isaiah, and according to the psalmist. And so God responds like any farmer would. If the vineyard is spoiled, if the grapes are rotten, then he has to start again. The the ground must be unsuitable or the vine itself tainted. Either way, there's no further point in maintaining the walls or continuing to staff it. The planting has failed and it should be abandoned to the wild animals. That is the fate that the psalmist is praying against. Lord, perhaps consider a less drastic approach. Perhaps consider some fertilizer or some pruning. Lord, please, let's give this vineyard one more chance to bear fruit. And this, of course, reminds us of the parable that Jesus told in Luke 13 about a tree in a vineyard that wasn't bearing fruit. The master wants to cut it down, but the vine dresser asks for one more season to dig around it and put manure on it. And if it doesn't bear fruit next year, Lord, by all means, cut it down. Asaph is playing the role of the vine dresser here. Lord, Yahweh, master, give them one more chance to bear fruit. Verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you 
Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So Asaph sees that God has started to set fire to his vineyard, and he pleads for him to put the fire out. Israel is your son, he says. You brought him out of Egypt. You led him by the hand. Yes, he is rebellious. Yes, he's a drunk and a lecher and an embarrassment, but he is your son. Revive him, Lord. Don't destroy him. Let your hand be upon him for revival and not for judgment. Lord, as you touched the earth once and made man. Touch us again and make us new. That's the substance of Asaph's marvelous prayer. In verse 17, there is an interesting reference to the man of your right hand and the son of man. What do those terms signify? Willem van Gemmeren is helpful here. He says, the ground of hope in restoration lies in the man at your right hand, also called the son of man. These allusions to the Davidic dynasty focus the hope of the godly in the continuity of God's redemptive purposes. Regardless of what happened at Samaria and of what may happen to Jerusalem, the Lord will be true to David. God's kingdom will be established by the Messiah of David, close quote. That's a good place for us to land because, of course, as we know from history, this marvelous prayer was not answered, at least not in the way that Asaph had hoped. God did not give Ephraim one more chance. The vineyard of northern Israel was burned down. There's a lesson in there for us. You don't always get one more chance to repent. The patience of God is not forever and is not to be presumed upon. And yet, God is faithful to himself, and he is faithful to his promises. He may have burned down northern Israel, but he had not given up on his people. A true vine would come, a true Israel, one who was son of man and son of David, and he would do what old Israel could never do. He would obey God perfectly. He would be a loving and obedient son. He would do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and he would pay for what we have done in his body on the cross. Out of the ruined vineyard grew a righteous shoot. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. 
There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 